Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line, the last dividing line of this particular trip. Uh, it's been 30, well, 32 days, I guess, since I left now. And uh, we get home tomorrow. <laughs> I just... <laughs> I just um, just saw a tweet. And... Uh, oops, oops, oops. Not that. I told it not to do that. So why would it keep doing that? I don't know why it would keep doing that. Anyway, um, so uh, I've got all sorts of notifications going on here. Now I'm very, very distracted. Just saw a tweet. Um, it hit 119 in Phoenix again today. I guess that's the third time. Now what's interesting is 2020 was the worst. 2020 was horrible. Uh, 53 days above 110. Who knows? We might be able to... I don't think we can get there because June was just blah. June June was nothing. Um, and so I don't think we'll, we'll, we'll beat that. But we have set a new record for this number of consecutive days above 110. And 119 is really above 110. It, it really, really is. And um, I'm... I'm I'm heading back into that furnace um, tomorrow, and we've decided wisely that I'm going to go straight to the office, and we're going to hook up a, a generator to this thing. We can only run one AC unit. It can't even get close to dealing with 119. It's only supposed to be 116 um, uh, tomorrow, which is, hey... Cold snap. Might have to put a jacket on after 119. And, uh, but at least it'll have some air moving around and get all the stuff out of here. You know, the camera that I'm looking into right now doesn't really like 119. <laughs> and uh, the microphone and the switcher and the hard drive, they don't really like that kind of stuff. So we got to get all this that stuff out of here. And, you know, I've got toiletries and stuff that just turned to goo at 120 you know uh just boop it's gone and uh so we're gonna get get sweaty i would imagine uh getting this thing uh i'm gonna get up early tomorrow morning and it's still three and a half hours to phoenix and just try to get down there as fast as i can uh without having any problems in the process so Anyway, uh, and I'm only home for a little over a month, and then the big trip. I'm, I'm really thankful for God's providence. I really am. Um, you know, I when when Chris contacted uh, Doctor Brownson, I'm like, okay, all right, we'll do this, and then that didn't work out appropriately, and. The individual I'm going to be debating, um, I think, um, what what is, oh, that's something else. Okay, good. It's, it's not rich. It's something else uh, going on here. Okay, good. Um, I think, honestly, that debating Dr. Coles, Gregory Coles, will probably have wider benefit for where the church is right now than the Brownson debate would have. And the the reason being that I've I've read the first of his books. I've got another book I need to read. So I've already gotten through that one. And I've been listening to some stuff from YouTube from him. And um this is gonna be this is gonna be helpful. It's gonna be helpful because you know, I, I listened to him at a church, and I was listening to the pastor interacting with him, and it was depressing, honestly. And it seems to me that Dr. Coles actually holds, even though he, he says he rejects the revisionist position, uh, his comments on um, Sodom and Gomorrah, on Jude, very dismissive. They don't even deal with, with the argumentation that I've presented on these issues. Um, his response to uh, Leviticus 18 and 20, not even close. 
um, his comments on Arsenicoites don't show much of an understanding of. I mean, he he understands Greek Septuagint, but he doesn't he doesn't seem to see, for example, in First Timothy that Paul is that Paul uses that along. He knows Pornia, and he knows what he should know is that Paul is adding that into the Ten Commandments at the place of the commandment on fornication. You should not commit adultery. Um, so, I there, there's going to be some useful, I, I think, really, really useful stuff here. Uh, but especially the whole idea that gay Christian is an appropriate moniker. And the related issues, it's its a big area. We may not get through all of it, uh, you know. Uh, it could be a packed debate. But that's coming up September 16th in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. And um, I don't, you know, I haven't looked at my own website. I don't know if we've put the graphic up yet. Um, but uh, if you're in the area, and he's in that area, so he's not having to travel, please pray for traveling mercies. <laughs> Because I've already set up the trip out there, and um, you know things can happen, and it can get challenging. So uh, please pray for traveling mercies uh, for that uh, that trip out there. Um, this morning, before I left uh, from Albuquerque, and by the way, I posted a, um, a radar shot. <laughs> Um, now, again, sometimes I get distracted. So hold on just a second. This just popped up on my screen from someone. I don't know. Uh, Neither James White nor his friend Jeff Durbin will speak to Orthodox Christians directly. It absolutely does reek of fear, which is a shame because Durbin has some fantastic apologetics against Mormons and JWs, and we could really use him on our team. I'm not sure this is Brother Brother Augustine, which is a married Jewish convert to Orthodox Christianity. Ex-Freemason. That's interesting. On the Masons and their lies. Okay. I have no idea who this is, and Augustine is not a normal term for Eastern Orthodox. There are Eastern Orthodox that honor Augustine, but most do not. And uh, I'm not sure what he means here. I mean, I've not debated Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, I've tried to avoid it just simply because there's only a certain number of things you can do well. And personally, um, the Orthodoxy in the United States is different than the Orthodoxy in ethnically Eastern Orthodox places. Russian Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy... Ukrainian Orthodoxy now. Um, lots of divisions there that, from this perspective, we don't necessarily see, but lots of divisions there. And a lot of ethnocentrism um, in, in Orthodoxy, a lot of nominalism in Orthodoxy. Um, but I'm not sure what he's referring to. I'm, I'm going to respond to him or try to remember to respond to him. But by the time I get done, who knows where... Um, that tweet went up. But that does remind me that I tweeted yesterday, and that's what I think is prompting all this stuff. Um, Jason Wallace, pastor at the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Magna, Utah. Most of you know Jason because uh, everything we've done in Utah has been with Jason. Uh, the debates, um, you look at uh, you know, all the discussions I did with Alma Allred. Who's the moderator? Jason Wallace. And all the Mormon debates. Who's the moderator? Jason Wallace. And the athe the, the infamous anti-freeze atheism debate. Who was the moderator? Jason Wallace. Um, who moderated the last debate with the two atheists on ethics and morality? Jason Wallace did. So we've been working with Jason for decades. And he has just been faithfully ministering the gospel in one of the craziest places on the planet, spiritually speaking. And um, I, I, that's, how, that's how I got stuck in Utah uh, back in April, was I stayed over to be at a celebration for 
how many years Jason's been in ministry and uh, was very honored to be there, uh, but ended up getting smacked by a snowstorm and um, having to stay longer and um, learned how to try <laughs> learned how to try to brush nine inches of snow and ice off the top of slide outs on a on an RV. That was lots of fun. Anyway, uh, Jason has produced a lot of videos on all sorts of different topics, not just Mormonism, but but other groups as well. Um, and so he had sent me a preview link to a video on Eastern Orthodoxy that he had been working on for months. And I was busy with a lot of other stuff, and I, I just got to it. And, and it's already available publicly. And so I didn't get to comment on it beforehand, but I got to listen to it yesterday as I was driving. And so I've only seen parts of it. He said, you need to watch this. The graph, I've spent a lot of time on the graphics. Well, when you're on the road, it's that driving time is the time that you have to be um, listening to stuff. Uh, it's wonderful. It is really, really good. And so I made reference to it on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, I'll try to remember to link to it when we blog this particular program. And I told, uh, I told Jason that I'd like to have him on to talk about, you know, what prompted him to do it, what sources, resources he used, and, and things like that. And I do want to do that. Be, and then I, I've got a couple of people that when we get back, Rich is going to have to, he's told me that it'd be really, really easy for me to have guests on from here. And I don't get how it's easy yet. So uh, maybe we'll figure that out on the next trip because it's going to be a long trip. Um, and, uh, but right now, uh, I want to have Jason on to talk about the Eastern Orthodoxy video. And I also want to have um, Tobias Riemenschneider. I can't say Tobias Riemenschneider anymore without going Riemenschneider um, from Frankfurt, Germany uh, on as well to talk about his new book. Um, as, you know, everything, poor, poor Tobias, everything he does, he has to translate it into English. Of course, his English is awesome. So it's pretty nice to be able to do that. But I want to have them on uh, over the next couple of weeks as well uh, here on the program. But uh, look up uh, the failure of Eastern Orthodoxy. Just just put that in the search bar right, well, not right now, uh, but uh, on YouTube. And it's two hours and 15 minutes long. It's, it's not a shorty. Uh, but uh, very, very useful there because there's just not all that much out there. And um, like I said, in, in my opinion, the Orthodox in the United States they're very different from the Orthodox overseas. And I've been overseas. A lot of these people haven't. Uh, I've been, I've, you know, I taught in Ukraine for years. And so, um, yeah, it's it's a big subject. And we, we talked about it when Hank Hanegraaff converted and stuff like that. But I'm sure we'll be doing more. And like I said, I'll have, have Jason on. We can, we can discuss that kind of stuff. So that just popped up in, right in front of me. Uh, and I, I, should, I shouldn't... Uh, you know, Pastor Steve Camp just responded to the 119 in Florida. We call this summer. Believe me, I don't think has Florida ever seen 119. There's a level of of extremity there. That's um, in fact, I think it would be best if I if I minimized Twitter. <laughs> if I'm gonna get anything else done, um, except that probably uh, I think that is where I had. No, I, I didn't. Anyway, I saw, I, I was saying I was in uh, Albuquerque and I saw a tweet um, from a friend. And I was, um, I was stunned. Last week, we worked through the horrifically edited Let's just drop this in here in the book thing from Matthew Barrett on what is Biblicism. And just a reminder, this is coming from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I don't know what the, what the, the board there is even thinking, to be honest with you. Um, maybe it's just, hey, we're getting published. That's cool enough for us. We don't care what the results are going to be. Anyway... 
we looked at the section from his new book that just it, it doesn't fit in the context it was just dropped in there i guess he said it's from another book he hasn't finished yet on systematic theology which tells you something about where that's going to go but it was just a hit piece it was rhetoric it was it was unfair it was imbalanced there was no no attempt to even try to be um charitable to the other side to go hey you know what uh only 10 years ago uh, all of us called ourselves biblicists and we understood that to mean this we understood that um not to mean that church history is irrelevant or not that confessions and creeds are irrelevant but that there is a hierarchy and that there is an emphasis upon the necessity to derive the core revelational truth from that which is theonustos, that which is God-breathed, and that there is a fundamental difference between something that is God-breathed and something that is not. Now, I'm sitting here, and I'm uh, looking at uh, the cash stuff. Uh, which is telling me um, that we're crashing and dying <laughs> badly. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, it's worked perfectly fine in the past, but we're in a new location, and um, I didn't I didn't put Starlink out, you know. Um, so uh, we'll probably end up having to upload this one anyways, and it's all going to crash and burn on us. So. Um, we're using a 5G hotspot. It worked fine right up until this point. But we do have a fair amount of weather coming right on top of us right now. Maybe that has something to do with it. I, I don't know. I apologize for the interruptions. Um, we press on uh, anyways. And uh, so there, there, the, the, the thing from Barrett was just really bad. And I responded to it. I, I'd written an article last year. All I've seen, I've not seen anyone, I've not seen any of these quote-unquote confessionalists even try to argue. What's, what is interesting is Barrett does make reference to Calvin's response to Satteletto and tries to use it on his side, but I don't see how you can do that if you actually read the whole thing. Anyway, uh, I wrote an article on reform biblicism, that I think is perfectly consistent with how Calvin did things and how we all had been doing things for decades. Um, and that's what I've believed and preached and taught in schools, and seminaries, and church pulpits all around the United States and around the world. And so this morning I saw Pat Abendroth. Now, the Abendroth brothers, um, one up in New England, one up in Nebraska, uh, Mike and Patrick, I have spoken in both churches multiple times. Um, Pat, uh, Pat and I used to ride bikes together. In fact, there was a time in the 90s when I could beat him. And then he became a semi-pro, I guess, and got really got into it and got super fit and all the rest of that stuff. And that's that's cool. That's great. But Pat Abendroth, um, who put a book out called Covenant Theology, was responding to someone named Jesse Randolph. Now, what's interesting is Jesse Randolph's a, a master seminary guy, too. And I, I don't know what the background here was uh, it, it looks like there was some kind of a of a conference or something where um, in a presentation in a talk uh, Jesse Randolph made reference to something that Pat Abendroth had said that there was I saw a tweet where he was talking about it um, and evidently Jesse Randolph would be more on my side of things. 
in regards to uh, the great tradition stuff and um, Craig Carter and Matthew Barrett and Aristotle and Thomas and all the rest. And so Pat Abendroth on the 23rd of July said, thank you for promoting my book addressed to Jesse Randolph. And then he says, Biblicism is cultic. And then later, um, and I'm not sure if it's a response to that or an expansion of that or just what. Thanks, Jesse Randolph, for calling me out before the IFCA for being a historic Christian, question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. Seriously, please know that I will be here for you when you are ready. Biblicism is not historic Christianity and is therefore cultic. Now, I, I don't, I don't know where this, um, and I just, I'm not sure who that that is. Again, I, okay, and I just saw. 23 minutes ago, Patrick Abendroth wrote to me, happy to send you what I wrote about it in 2016, directed toward those who reject things like classic covenant theology's labels, such as covenant of works, grace, and redemption. I just emailed you. Thanks, James. Um, classic covenant theology's labels, such as covenant of works, grace, and redemption. Well, I don't see any reason reject any of those and I don't know how that's related to Biblicism unless again Barrett's definition of Biblicism was uh, disjointed and ahistorical really in fact was fascinating what he referred to and um, Chris Wisenant did a thread on this on Twitter today Chris followed up on the sources that Barrett cited and the earliest source that he cited was a Roman Catholic source that was going after Sola Scriptura and calling it Biblicism and Scripturalism. Why use those sources? Aren't we, don't we still believe in Sola Scriptura? Uh, aren't we supposed to be defending Sola Scriptura? I mean, Barrett's constantly saying, oh, this Roman Catholic, all the best, of and this guy is over here, this is great. And, you know, we've shown pictures of the staff suggestions in the bookstore at Midwestern where four out of the six were from Roman Catholics. And everybody's like, oh, well, that's, just, uh, that's just scholarship. Okay, and so you're using uh, those kind of sources to even define Biblicism when they're attacking Solo Scriptura? Very strange. Um, but anyway, so... I don't know what the context here is, but saying Biblicism is cultic? Pat, there was a hill that we rode a couple times. In fact, if I recall, we raced it like three times one day. And um, I think you won one and I won two, or maybe it was the other way around, I don't remember. But we sort of split it, but it was, it was hard work. And if we had stopped the other end, I think we did, you know, catch our breath, turn around, go back, do it again. And if we had started chatting, could you imagine back then any context where Biblicism would have been considered an insult? Or where you would have said Biblicism is cultic? Or where I would have said Biblicism is cultic? It just seems to me today there's far more danger from people who are abandoning the highest view of Scripture and the ultimate authority of Scripture and submitting Scripture to authority outside of itself. There's far more danger from that. I mean, we recognize when people try to reinvent the wheel. We recognize those groups. We recognize the... Uh, Revivalist groups from the United, you know, the United States, 
you know, in the 1800s and, and, you know, we're just going to try to start all over again. And, you know, we get that and nobody can do that. Even the people that pretend to be doing that can't do that. The vocabulary has come from, from, you know, all sorts of people before us. But there is a huge chasm to jump over to get to the point where you're going to say something like, Biblicism is cultic. There needs to be such a massive um, effort put into accurately defining what we're talking about. Ten years ago, if you had asked anybody at Masters to describe John MacArthur's ministry, what would have been the most common term used? Biblical, biblicist, biblicism. Preach the word. Right? So why on earth now are we willing to trade all that in and go, biblicism's cultic? What do you mean by it? Because I'm a Biblicist, and I was when I preached at your church. Were we cultic back then? No, you're not. You're not rejecting the, these. Okay, yeah, we can. You we can have discussions and use labels, but what's the ultimate standard by which all those things are going to be judged? It's not the great tradition. You can't be a Protestant for very long, consistently, and talk about the great tradition. Because we don't hold the great tradition. We are Biblicists on so many things. How we do church, how our understanding of the church offices, how we do the ordinances or sacraments, whatever term you want to use. We are Biblicists on all that stuff. All that stuff. I don't understand how on earth any Protestant, let alone any Baptist, um, could ever utilize the, the phrase Biblicism is cultic. I, 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 don't, I don't get it. I, I just do not understand it in, in any way, shape, or form. So, Who's changed? I mean, everybody changes over time. Everybody develops. Everybody grows. Um, but when it comes to this issue, I'm just seeing a... Um, this just isn't right. Just simply to throw out, Biblicism is culting. Um, there is a proper, defensible, right, and we all used it, definition, of Biblicism, and it's not cultic by any stretch of the imagination, and we shouldn't be using that. If you all are going to be criticizing Biblicism, you all need to define it, and that Matthew Barrett thing was a face-plantingly bad failure as to what Biblicism, as we all used to practice it and confess it, meant and what it was. You know, if you're just talking about, well, we all we can use are um, is biblical terminology. That's all. That's all we can do. I, I don't know anybody who's arguing that. I really don't. I mean, you know, Church of Christ does it, but they don't do it for a long period of time because they can't. I'm certainly not doing that. What I am saying is the apostolic emphasis in defying the Christian faith, can only be found in Scripture. It cannot be found anywhere else. It cannot be found in creeds. It cannot be found in confessions. And yes, I still believe, um, I still believe very clearly and very fully um, in the supremacy of Scripture, 
and the fact that what we believe in our creeds and confessions, semper reformanda. And if people, well, that was, uh, was uh, you know, Karl Barth came up with it, this, this theologian, that theologian, it was just meant to be able to change everything. No. Every time I've used that phrase in a debate with a Roman Catholic or anybody who had external authorities, every time, I have been very, very clear that what I'm saying is the church is the bride of Christ and listens to his voice and never substitutes her own for his. That's absolutely central and necessary. So I'll, I'll take a look at your email and get a chance. Can't do that right now. Um, but if you're going to say biblicism is cultic, you need to be much clearer in your definition. You really, really do. You can't just throw that out there. Uh, because, um, like I said, even 10 years ago, let alone back in the 90s, even 10 years ago, no one would have had any idea what that was about. Not amongst us, anyway. Not amongst us. Okay, um, I want to get to some of this stuff. I'm getting hammered with messages and stuff uh, that look really, really interesting. Um, but, um, anyway. Uh, huh. It's going to be a busy evening. It's got to be a short evening because tomorrow's going to come really, really early. Um, Wanted to get to, finally, uh, talked about doing this and so much other stuff has come up. Want to spend the rest of the program um, since the live stream has failed. Sorry, apologize to that, everybody. Don't have any idea why. You know, you can we can sit here and it was for, I started at 15 minutes before we started the program. And it was fine for 15 minutes. And then you start the program and stuff happens. I, I don't know. Like I said, because of the brevity of this stop, I didn't put Starlink out. But when we did the speed test, everything was fine. So I, I don't know. Uh, mentioned at the beginning of this trip, because uh, it was right at the beginning of this trip, that I listened to the dialogue between William Lane Craig and Dale Tuggy as I was leaving on the very first day of this trip. Seems like a long time ago. And we haven't, I haven't played any of it in all that time. We've been talking about the stuff and we've been dealing with a lot of Unitarianism and we've gotten into all sorts of biblical studies, which has been great. Um, but we haven't listened to it yet. And so I want to go back there and, and do some of it. Again, I will be playing this a little bit sped up, just simply for time's sake. Uh, and it makes everybody sound smarter when they can talk faster. <laughs> it's not Mickey Mouse speed, uh, chipmunk speed, uh, but it's just enough to, to get things done a little bit faster. So, to remind you, there was, it was about a year ago or so, there was a dialogue between William Lane Craig and Dale Tuggy. They only had an hour and in the first part, Craig is defending his view against Tuggy. And his view is a sub-confessional, sub-orthodox uh, perspective that he claims is, hey, well, I believe in sola scriptura. Well, um, we could disagree. Well, we have disagreed. I mean, I've criticized... Craig's amazing statements about the Trinity a number of times in the past, especially when he compared it to Kerberos. Well, yeah. uh, he's a Neo-Polinarian, so he, he's not orthodox on the doctrine of the Trinity. He's just not. Um, and the dialogue was, in my opinion, a waste of 30 minutes. It is, it is, however, a wonderful illustration of just how empty philosophical Trinitarianism is. In fact, I was thinking... Yesterday, I, we again, we've been trying to use this uh, wonderful gift of this studio. And the funny thing is, last night I did a program with somebody else from Albuquerque. And it was always supposed to be an hour. We did two hours and 15 minutes. No problems whatsoever. <laughs> same, 
same Wi-Fi hotspot, the whole nine yards, no problems. And then we try to do the dividing line next next day, and that work. Um, but one of the super chat questions that came in was about recommendations for books on the Trinity. And one of the things that I said was, I said, there's a lot of books that have been written on the Trinity recently. Uh, there hadn't been when I wrote The Forgotten Trinity. There had been a dearth of books on the Trinity for a long, long time. And I said, if you pick up one of the new books, if you're, if you're lost or bored in the first 10 minutes, get rid of it. Don't put yourself through it. Um, I said, one of the things I'm most proud of is that I've, I've had so many people come up to me over the years and say, I love the Trinity. Because I started off with a discussion of why is it we never hear anybody say, I love the Trinity. But one of the comments I made, and this will be offensive to some people, but it's my experience. And check it out for yourself. Um, you look at all these books that are being referred to by Protestants as the best in the field from Roman Catholics on Trinitarian issues. They are stultifyingly boring. There's no passion anywhere. This is not meant to edify the people of God. It is, it's like reading a really smart person talking about nuclear physics. Okay? Yeah, they're really smart and they're really good at what they do. But the Trinity isn't nuclear physics. If it doesn't impact your daily life, if you don't see how it's meant to be central to your worship and and if it doesn't cause you to worship nuclear physics well it's important stuff everybody's looking at the oppenheimer movie i guess right now ah, okay fine but i said on the program i said I, I i don't know how people write books like this you you have to be passionate about this this is not something you can fill pages with and uh same thing here. The philosophical back and forth. Well, you know, uh, the model that I prefer. And, and, and philosophers can just go, well, I'm not sure I affirm that, but I sort of think. And well, what do you, how do you define this? And, and it's just this sophistry. It's just, it's like, oh my goodness, what an utter waste of time. So halfway through, the host said, hey, we only have... Um, Dr. Craig for an hour, so we are, we are at the 32-minute mark. I think you're going to hear him say that. And so they switched. And so let's um, make sure that... Now, I don't have anything to show you here because um, uh, this is all audio. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there it was video, but it's, it's one of those talking head things where you've got three faces staring at you, so big deal. Uh, but let's um, let's dive into this and uh, see what we can see. I mean, okay, I don't I see why it matters why we call point. the person substances or not. To shift to the to the next section because we're at the thirty-two minute mark and we've only got Dr. Craig for one hour. Okay. So uh, let's go ahead and turn now to your view, Dr. Tuggy. You'll get to defend it in in a little bit more detail here. So first, why don't you explain uh, what what is Unitarianism? So a Unitarian Christian theology is anyone on which the one true God is the Father alone. So the Old Testament Yahweh turns out to be one and the same as the one Jesus prayed to as our Father in heaven. Jesus for us is a man, a human person who is God's unique Son and Messiah. And we agree with all clear New Testament teachings about him such that he died for our sins, that he was raised to immortality by God, that he was exalted to God's right hand, where he now, among other things, is the unique mediator between God and us. And in general, we want to interpret difficult and unusual New Testament passages, which are often the favorite apologist passages, by the way, Philippians 2, John 1, Colossians 1. We Did you catch that? Whoops, sorry. Did you catch that? The unusual. The unusual. Think about what he just... Philippians 2 is a fragment of a hymn of the early church. It's unusual that they would be singing... It's a sermon illustration. It is so basic to Christian theology that Paul can cite it as a sermon illustration. You don't cite unusual, strange, weird, difficult, off-center stuff 
as a sermon illustration. It's something everybody at Philippi already knew. And John 1, the, the prologue that gives you all of the, um, the, the lenses that you need to understand the rest of the gospel. Pretty strange stuff there. It's just, uh, that's not the clear stuff. That's, the, I mean, this is insulting to the writers of the New Testament that John 1, Here's John laying out, this is what I want you to see in my gospel. And look at this at the end. Oh, my Lord and my God. Oh, the, the, wow, the themes all fit together. But that's strange. It's unusual. <laughs> no, it's not. In fact, let me, let me, let me back it up here. Let, let's, let's make sure. I, 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 I want to make sure that we, we get the terminology uh, very, very clearly here. So... And we agree with all clear New Testament teachings about him, such that he died for our sins, that he was raised to immortality by God, that he was exalted to God's right hand, where he now, among other things, is the unique mediator between God and us. Notice he doesn't have, um, you know, his preexistence, he's the creator of all things, you know, all those other equally clear New Testament teachings. And in general, we want to interpret difficult and unusual New Testament passages, which are often the favorite apologist passages. Difficult and unusual. Difficult and unusual. What makes them difficult? Uh, they don't fit into a Unitarian perspective, so that makes them difficult. The, the deep presuppositional nature of Tuggy's commitment to Unitarianism, he doesn't see it. You can point it out, just yep, not, not going to see it, not going to hear it, but it's so obviously clear. By the way, Philippians 2, John 1, Colossians 1. We want to interpret the more difficult passages by the more numerous and the clearer ones. So, Colossians 1. Didn't mention that one. You need to realize that um, what's going on in Colossae is a presentation of Jesus as one of the eons, as part of the lower realm. And... Colossians 1 is saying, no, you can't do that. He's the creator. He's the maker of all things. Well, that's difficult. <laughs> Central. You, you, all, you completely eviscerate Paul's anti-Gnostic polemic by calling it a difficult text. No, it's as clear as day. But the only reason it's difficult is they don't believe it. They just, they, just, they just don't accept it. Um, all there is to it. So that's what it is. It has nothing to do with Unitarian Universalism, by the way. That's why I call it Unitarian Christian view. It's a Bible-motivated Bible view. Okay. Now, what are some of your reasons for holding this view? Obviously, the, the data from the New Testament, I know that you, you think that that's a reason. You can lay that out in more detail, specific yeah. verses if you want. But if there are other reasons as well, go ahead. Well, I mean, it's a whole bunch of things about the New Testament, right? In John 17, 1 through 3, Jesus prays to the Father and calls him the only true God, right? Dr. Craig has authored a textbook for kids on logic, so he knows how you analyze a statement like that. It says that uh, the Father is true God, and for anything, whatever, if it, it's true God, only if it just is the Father. Um, there's two claims, that God, uh, God is, uh, sorry, the, God is, the Father is God and that nobody else is. Those are the two claims that are being made there. Um, it's not just that passage, it's all over the New and did, did you notice, of course, um, one through three. Let's not look at five, because five will demonstrate that we have no idea what we're talking about and that we are eisegeting the text. Because in verse five, you have one divine person speaking to another divine person about the glory they shared together in eternity past. There is no way around that. No way around that. And he knows it. And so you, you just have to, just like the Muslims, you just have to focus on verse 3, ignore its context, ignore the rest of John, and say, nope, nope, there it is. The Father alone is God. And doesn't matter if in two breaths Jesus is saying, glorify me with the glory which I had in your presence before the world. But let's not worry about the context. It's just... Yeah. New Testament is usually an assumption. It's not a point of dispute in those times. 
So it's far more often assumed than is stated. Um, you know, lest you think that Jesus is God in the same sense that the Father is, multiple times in the New Testament, and there's nothing unclear about these passages, the Father is referred to as Jesus' as God. Now, constantly, over and over again. Now, by the way, Craig's going to get in here, and this is the one place where Craig will actually you know, present some serious argumentation, which was nice. But Unitarians, and I've said this on previous programs, demonstrated this on Twitter, Unitarians will not allow for the reality of the Incarnation. The Word cannot be made flesh. Jesus can't be talking about having come down from heaven. Uh, we can't have any of that kind of stuff. And so you will take statements about Jesus' incarnate state, where Philippians 2 says, equal with God the Father, but he empties himself. That doesn't mean he loses any of his divine prerogatives. But as Christians, from the beginning, have used terms like veiling, um, voluntarily laying aside for a season, for a purpose, to accomplish. If, if, if you all can't use that terminology then you just don't want to deal with the New Testament and you just are in love with a philosophical system. But anyway, uh, that reality of the incarnate state is right there in the New Testament. But they just, it's just like, it just doesn't even register with them. They just will not even consider it. And so they'll take statements about Jesus in the incarnate state and then transfer that to before the incarnation or after the incarnation or or whatever they need to do to deny the deity of Christ. Um, and we always have to keep an eye on that because that's you know that's that's what the the Muslims do all the time. The Unitarians do it all the time as well. For pretty much the same reasons, actually. And it's said that Jesus has is under the same God that we are under, which is something that God could not do. Or he does a bunch of things. Did you catch that? Something God could not do. Can't be an incarnation. There can't be an incarnation. Go watch the debate I did with Abdullah Kunda. 2011, Australia, New South Wales, Sydney. Um, over and over again, that's fundamentally what you encounter when you're dealing with Muslims. Well, God just can't do that. God can't do that. And you say, so God can create a perfect human nature but he cannot join himself to a perfect human nature to accomplish his own glorification, right? That's what you're saying. It's not like you came up with that from the Bible. That's just a philosophical conclusion you've come to. God can't do, you know, he's tempted. God is essentially immortal, whereas Jesus dies. Uh... Again, one of the most simplistic errors that Dale Tuggy makes over and over again. Of course, God is immortal. And God did not cease to exist. But the whole point of the Incarnation was to be able to offer the sacrifice for sin for all of God's people. That requires the God-man. And he gives his perfect human life. It doesn't cease to exist. Not even, not even his humanity ceased to exist, because that's not what death is. But he gave his life on Calvary's tree. And he's buried. And he rises again three days later. And they're just simply saying, well, God can't do that. God just, nope, God can't do that. And that's, that's why, you know, Unitarianism is just so beneath Christianity. Because that's the whole point of the Christian faith, is that God did that. And it's amazing that he did that. And it's a demonstration of his love and his condescension and his grace. But... Uh, Unitarianism has none of that, and it's um, sad. God can't be his own mediator, but Jesus is the mediator between God and us. Uh, of course God can't be his own mediator, but there are three persons in the Godhead, and one of them has been united to that perfect human nature. He becomes the God-man, is still the God-man, and is the means by which we then are united to God through him. Without that, 
you still end up with exactly what you have in Islam. You have us separated from God. There is no intimate union. And there isn't a Unitarianism either. Because you, you cannot have the people of God united to God by a mere creature. God has to bring that about himself. And he does that through Jesus Christ. That's why you look at Ephesians chapter 1, everything that's done there, in Christ, in him, in the beloved. And that continues to be the case. And that can, that, that's the whole point of you know Hebrews 6. We have that anchor in the holy place because that's where Christ has gone as our forerunner. And we are united to him. And he is able to save to the uttermost. Because he's the God-man. He, will, he is perfect in what he does, in everything that he does, including bringing about our salvation. Um, there's a lot of other things about the New Testament. The pattern of worship, I think, better fits my view than Dr. Craig's. There is nowhere in the New Testament where there's presupposed worship of the Trinity. It just never happens. Uh, remember last week we went through Revelation 4 and 5, and we saw the expansion that is necessary from Isaiah 6 in light of the incarnation, now we have the Lamb standing as a slain, the, the seven spirits of God. That doesn't mean there's seven different spirits, but seven the fullness. Uh, and so you you have you have it right there. You have the expansion of the uh, worship from Isaiah six, which, by the way, John twelve forty one tells us the one being worshipped there was the pre incarnate Son. But now, in light of the accomplishment that He is that he has worked out, you now have the clarity and all created things worship he who sits on the throne and the Lamb. So, like, he's just wrong. But there, and there's also no worship of the Holy Spirit, which is contrary to what you would expect. What you see instead is... Um, well, I would, I would disagree in regards to the seven spirits in Revelation, but given the role and function of the Spirit in at this point in time, in directing people to Christ, that's why, you know, he just, he'll, he'll just make these statements like, which is what you'd expect? Well, from, based on what? Why do you say you'd, you'd see that, you'd see that, you'd expect that to happen? He doesn't say. So he does he's not dealing with what Scripture says the role the Spirit now is. That's just left off the side, and, and again, the system becomes the, the rule that the primary and ultimate recipient of worship is the father. Oh, and also Jesus, especially after his uh, exaltation to God's right hand is also worshiped revelation four compare that with revelation five. And Paul says in Philippians two, that Jesus is worshiped to the glory of God, the father, right? God is not worshiped to the glory of somebody above him. Now notice what is said there. God is not worshiped to the glory of someone above him. So notice there's a assertion being made there above him. Uh, there's a, you know, and remember, well, that's because uh, whenever the God, that, that's always the Father. Well, it's not always the Father. It's times used of Jesus. But how about Lord? How about Lord? You know, Yahweh, the, the, the very name used in the Greek Septuagint. Who's that applied to? Almost always it's applied to the Son. And so he's saying, yes, there's, there's I, I don't know what he used, the, what the Jehovah's Witnesses do, relative worship here. Um, I don't know. But in Daniel 7, it's Latruo. That's the highest form of worship. I, I don't know how you avoid polytheism, um, worshiping of multiple deities. But then he says, well, but it's to the glory of God the Father. This again, it reminds me of John chapter 5, where Jesus lays out for us this, this union between himself and the Father, but also distinction. It's the Son who has become incarnate, not the Father. It's the Son who is obeying the Father's will for him as Messiah, as the one bringing about redemption. Uh, and yet we are to honor the Son even as we honor the Father. And there is this... Jesus isn't presenting himself as a competing deity. As if the worship of the Son is distracting from or... Um, subtracting from the worship of the Father. 
any more than in Revelation chapter 5, when every created thing worships him who sits upon the throne and the Lamb, that that means each one's only getting 50%. That's not an understanding of worship. And that's not an understanding of the fact we're talking about one God, Yahweh. Yahweh is being worshipped here. But we see in light of what happens in the New Testament that Yahweh is tripersonal. We actually saw that back in Genesis. But anyway. Um, you know, just the way it uses uh, the terms uh, God that we hear. We have the term God the Father in the New Testament. We don't have the term God the Trinity. We don't have the term God the Son. We don't have the term God the Spirit. Um, just think about the fact that... Well, again, why would you... We have our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How's that? We, we have, um, we have the, the, when, I, when I give the benediction at Apologia, there's a couple of different texts that I will use. But the shortest one is, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all those terms are used interchangeably elsewhere in the New Testament. Don't we have the grace of God? Well, here's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And love God, love Christ. Fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we have... You, How can you just string these things together and go, yeah, well, these are, these are over here are creatures, but only this is the one true God. And No, Unitarianism makes a mockery of the New Testament. It is not the natural reading at all. There is no term at all that it was then understood to refer to the Trinity. That's a dead giveaway. They didn't believe in the Trinity. Right? The very first thing they would do is they would come up with a word by which to refer to this tripersonal God that they believe in, not only its parts. Okay, why? I mean, it happens eventually as the gospel goes out into uh, the Roman Empire. And as questions begin to be asked, then eventually terminology is developed to answer said questions. But who's the name, Dale, that people in the book of Acts suffer for? What's the name? What's the name referred to? From your perspective, it would be God the Father Yahweh or something like that, right? But it's Jesus. You know it's Jesus. That's the name that identifies the way. That doesn't distract from the Father because they recognize what has happened in the Incarnation. You know, John didn't just come up with John 12, 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. He didn't just come up with that in AD 90. That was being taught in the primitive church. That was the, the common possession of everybody. That's why Paul can, again, Use as a sermon illustration the high, high, high Christology of the Carmen Christi. And he can apply a text specifically about Yahweh to Jesus. There in that, he doesn't have to stop and say, oh, but now let me, you know, in case anybody gets confused here. Didn't have to do any of that. And the reason he didn't have to do any of that. Um, is because it was already understood and believed uh, by the people there. So, again, my apologies for uh, the death of the live stream. I don't, I don't know why. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't like that. that whatever this model is, it's never consistent for me. Sometimes it works great, and five hours later... It's like a 2400 baud modem from 1999. Uh, did we have 14.4s by 1999? I guess we probably did. Yeah, anyway. Um, so I just, don't, I just don't like this thing. I really don't. But that's life. All right, so um, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. But we'll be back in Phoenix. We'll have our regular studio. Um, I'm just not sure what day it's going to be. Just because we've got stuff to do with this. Uh, there's some maintenance things that need to be dealt with. I need to be taking it into uh, the place where we get work done on it, you know, uh, especially because this next trip, <laughs> it's going to be a long one. Uh, debate, Pennsylvania, G3. Um, it's going to be a very, very stressful uh, trip. And she's got to be in, in good shape. 
And the other stress is going to be she's going to be cooking for the next month. And she really will be. I mean, I feel sorry for everything in here. I'm really hoping that my uh, my background survives um, the extreme heat. We'll find out. We'll find out whether the new adhesive that I used works. And if it doesn't, Rich is going to want me just to leave it there <laughs> and we're, and do an apocalyptic dividing line. <laughs> we almost did it with the last one, but I, I just, I was like, no, I need to get this done. And that's just sort of how it is. So, uh, yeah, I don't know why this program started playing the outro before. I wanted to play the outro, but it did, and that sort of bugs me. But we'll start it now and we'll go from there so thank you very much for watching the last road trip dividing line for a while anyways we'll see you from the regular studio at some point in the upcoming days 